Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, episode 58, the one about rebranding in the digital era, DJ Action 2 Camera, UK Health Radio, and Interview with the Vampire. Let's get on with the show. And hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back with more news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, I am Dr. Man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast and the author of Cats, Mats, and Marketing Plans. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, hello, and thank you so much. And of course, my co-host is also a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Thank you very much, and thank you to all of you, our supporters, listeners, and viewers. We are approaching our only to a little milestone, Roger. Episode 60 mm. is mm. looming, and uh, we'll be talking perhaps next week about what we're going to do about it to celebrate um, what is coming to also to the end of this calendar year. Can I just say that um, winter has arrived? <laughs> It certainly has. It certainly has. We haven't put the heating on yet, though, I have to say. But have you we not? Did l- no, we did light the bioethanol fire the other day, though. We, <laughs> cause, uh, we did feel the need to see some flames dancing in front of our eyes. <laughs> so I'm aware that we do have, and I'm extremely flattered as you are, we do have a global audience. So some listeners and viewers will be thinking, no, we're fine. But uh, for the others, we're going to try and bring a bit of warmth in a, and a bit of light entertainment to kind of help you wrap up your your week roger has selected a brilliant brilliant choice for film marketing we're going to come on to a movie that probably has been responsible in reinventing the vampire genre in the 90s amongst others it is also i believe our third vampire movie we talked about the lost boys we talked about blade but this is one in in between actually interview with the vampire so well done roger i'm super happy with that Fantastic. Can't wait to talk about it. What a gothic masterpiece it is and an intriguing marketing story behind it. Absolutely. So before we get to that point, let's start with our usual first segment in the news. According to a recent report by Google, UK retailers are further along the digital maturity framework and should find themselves in a stronger position to capture demand this festive season. Well, that's good news. Netflix is finally rolling out its gaming service. Android users will get access to five mobile games initially. Two of them are based on the Stranger Things TV series. Microsoft wants to make meetings more interactive and Teams will get new 3D avatars to push forward towards a metaverse environment in the first half of 2022. And customers in 12 London boroughs will be able to order products from Curry's and have them delivered in 30 minutes by Uber for an additional £5 delivery charge. A new supermarket war has started between Tesco and Morrisons, not for the lowest prices, but for the fastest electric charging points. Since January 2020, nearly a thousand new devices have been fitted into supermarket car parks across the UK. Well, 39% of UK consumers do not trust marketers to safeguard their data, and 87%, Roger, have no recollection of opting in for the communications from brand according to Akia's fourth annual report. The team behind the Headliner app has launched a new service called Disco. It can dynamically recommend your podcast content to your blog readers at the right time and the most relevant point of the podcast episode. Wow. Well, Marks & Spencer's Christmas food TV campaign has begun, but social media is where the brand expects to see the biggest switch with the mascot Percy Pig being launched on TikTok. (laughs) Percy Pig. (laughs) What a incredible selection of news. That's absolutely a hard to choose one, but confession time, Roger, listeners and viewers. Yeah. I yeah. did choose the news about Microsoft and the metaverse just for you. So that um, our viewers <laughs> on YouTube can see your facial expression as you're reading out this yes. item. Yeah, you've very carefully maneuvered my soapbox in front of me so I can now step onto it. I mean, the metaverse has all of a sudden become the talk of the town, hasn't it? Everybody's going on about the metaverse. And undoubtedly, Pascal, undoubtedly, in a number of years' time, and I don't know whether it'll be one year, two years, ten years, the metaverse will be big. It will be as big as the web is now. It's effectively web part three, I think some people are calling it. But at the moment, it seems to me that all the um, 
executions of the metaverse at the moment outside of games look really crap. Now, technically, a game like Fortnite or Call of Duty could be described as a metaverse because you've created a, a, a pretend world, a virtual world. And your character in Fortnite, your, your warrior, can run around that landscape and interact with buildings and items and this, that and the other. But what Microsoft are doing and, and what Facebook have also alluded to is creating an, a, a meeting environment where you can stick on a pair of Oculus goggles or something like that. And you can be sat in a pretend meeting room with pretty crappy looking cartoon avatars of your colleagues from San Francisco, London, Newcastle, wherever it might be. And they seem to think that this is what people want. Now, admittedly, over the course of the pandemic, when we've had to be locked down, we've all resorted to using Zoom and Teams to have meetings. But at least we can actually see the real people that we're talking to, just like you and I can see each other on the screen now. And I know that it's the real you. Now, do they genuinely think that apart from maybe having a bit of a laugh for five minutes, genuine business people are going to want to sit with big goggles on in a really fake environment looking at cartoon characters instead of the Zoom or Teams actual real-life alternative. I just can't see it, Pascal. And, and it, that's why it just feels to me as if all this talk about the metaverse is it's just like like a, a solution looking for a problem and they haven't really defined it properly yet and they're just messing about and and maybe that's the way that we'll get the breakthrough by messing about but do business people genuinely want to have meetings in an environment like that so as you can see viewers and listeners this was delightful wasn't it that was perfect <laughs> but um no i think roger you're absolutely right this is experimentation time this is us helping microsoft facebook and all the others finding out how to make this into a much better product and we do know that the um kind of vr ar um, solution is doing an amazing job in health, in training, in all sorts of things. I mean, I've seen an example of people learning how, for example, to do an operation, how to navigate around an oil rig and avoid danger using those headsets. So there's many, many applications. But one that I would argue with you, I would agree, is the, 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 the meeting. Now, what Microsoft are arguing is saying people are so tired and fed up of um, meetings that we've invented this uh, 3D avatar to make to make the meetings more enjoyable. And I said, no, 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 no. To begin with, uh, let's have a clear agenda. You know, the usual stuff that you know, I was mentioned to me before. And also, if you want to have a better meeting, improve the audio, improve the video. Don't invite people to transform themselves into avatars. And some of the demonstration were really strange, whereby some people were um, normal, forgive me, they had the video on and and others had the avatar so then suddenly you have this kind of weird meeting with some somebody who is real and somebody who is essentially a virtual so how's that supposed to make you feel as the person who switched on the um, the, the camera so i think you're right that this is not solving the, the problem necessarily and my position will be that facebook in particular has been going on about this uh, you know virtual environment since the mid 10s i mean i think their conference 2015 and 16 they were doing demonstration of what i think they call facebook spaces if i'm not mistaken and it hasn't taken up and microsoft is saying oh with us it'll be better because you, you will not have to wear the goggles you just be able to switch on teams and in the different windows, some will be avatars and some will be just normal individuals. And I'm thinking, what a very strange meetings that is going to be. And beyond, you're right, the laughs for the first 10 minutes of trying to, you know, do your avatar like you and I did back in the days of having our first Nintendo Wii. Eventually, they're going to go. And, and I think uh, people will just go back to better meetings with better agendas, better video and audio quality, which is where I think the effort should be. Uh, transcription, I think that, that's where the effort should be. Um, better um, content sharing and so on and so forth. But this is not um, the, the problem that people are pointing out to those platforms. 
I think we just violently agreed with each other there, Pascal. <laughs> and just to be clear to our listeners, viewers, if this is your first time, this is not Two Grumpy Men and a marketing podcast. Roger and I have been using tech since the you know early 80s, would you say? Yeah. We yeah. have been responsible in creating many, many of those, uh, well, pa- participating, should I say, in the creation of many of those solutions. So we're going into this with our eyes wide open with decades of um, trade and industry experience and this metaverse in a context of a business meeting is just, um, I think it's wrong and and it's going to annoy people, particularly non-marketers who are going to hear metaverse mention every other sentences. Let's move <laughs> on to something more positive. I'm going to combine yes. the news of Curry's working with Uber with Tesco and Morrison fighting it out with uh, electric charging points. It's almost this idea of, it's not the product anymore that is part of the offer. It's the added services through partnership with, um, in the case of Curry's Uber, and in the case of Tesco Morrison, some essentially charging point companies. Yeah, it's interesting. I did a, a, a talk at a, on a webinar recently where I I was asked the question, it was a financial services webinar, I was asked the question, is it possible to do innovative product development? Um, in the financial services industry and the question was was posed like when will we see the uber of financial services and i actually came to the conclusion in that talk that actually if you look at uber and you look at these companies like uber that have changed things they haven't actually changed the product you know uber haven't invented a new taxi vehicle you know they haven't revolutionized the london black cab into a new shape it's not a hover cab or something like that and airbnb didn't change architecture they didn't change how hotels and apartments are built they just changed the service that goes around it and i think that this is where we are seeing the innovation isn't it it's the it's the service and the the add-ons to products that we're seeing here that is where where the real exciting things are happening. I think for me, the, the, the two stories around speed and convenience, which we see uh, over and over again, but not at the expense of real human interaction, which is where mm. I think Microsoft with the metaverse is kind of um, getting it slightly wrong, but time, time will tell. I just find it fascinating because in in the news segment, you and I have, have brought to the fore many partnerships mm. that on paper you could argue, what, sorry, said that again? But for, from the customer's point of view, it makes sense. I mean, to find that you're now going to choose curries, not because the products are better, um, cheaper, or another, it's because they'll be with you in your office in 30 minutes. Now, I know that you and I have not spent time in an office space for, for a while, but um, you remember perhaps the many, many times you ran out of um, ink cartridge yes. or that the photocopier got jammed or paper ran out because somebody was too lazy to let anybody else know. And then conversely, um, choosing to go to Morrison's as opposed to another because you know for a fact that your car will be charged faster. I mean, I just find it fascinating in terms of, um, you know, the psychology of of consumers. Oh, this whole thing about charging cars is going to become big, isn't it? As we all move eventually towards electric cars, you know, the infrastructure at the moment isn't really good enough. I I was watching on on YouTube the other day a video of this guy who was driving from something like Leeds to Manchester. And his, his electric car had a full charge and his... Basically, the video was that with his his journey from the two cities, but he was in the bottom corner. He had the percentage of the of the uh, charge in the vehicle, and it was going down. Obviously, and he just hit traffic jams. He hit roadworks. He hit diversions, and in the end, he didn't get to his destination because his car ran out of electric juice and he had to effectively divert to find a charging station now you could argue the same thing would happen with petrol but at the moment it's easier to find a petrol station i would argue than it is to find an electric charging point and at least people like tesco and morrison's are doing something to change that 
Mm. I was very tempted to, to, to get your reaction on this report from Akia about the lack of trust and confidence in for UK consumers around data. But I want to finish on a positive. You know, we promised yes. people this would be about warming things up and a bit of light entertainment. So actually, I'm going to ask you about this news from Headliner and this new service called Disco. So you have been creating podcast content for a very long time. I mean, I should know this, but how many episodes have you produced now for Marketing and Finance Podcast? Yesterday was episode 279. Oh, my goodness. It's just extraordinary. I mean, I'm, I'm just in awe of, of that. And therefore, you are. You, you, some time ago, you probably reached this issue of abundance. You know, how do you make pay, um, your website visitors find the content? And this idea of your podcast episode being matched to your written content, but not only that, but the very bit in the, the podcast episode being matched in terms of, I'm suspect, would be keywords and other form of AI and semantic match. Uh, I don't know. Are you interested? Are you excited about it? I think it's very interesting, isn't it, how you can do that and, and you can point people around. And, and you're absolutely right. It's something that I probably don't think about enough. I've got, as you, as I just said, 279 different episodes, which means I've got 279 different web pages, one for each episode, plus there's a page with links to all of them. And I've never really sat there and thought I need to sort out the navigation or maybe categorize them into subjects they're just all there so something like this which will help people to navigate you know quite a big podcast catalog like mine is is got to be welcomed super well listen let's wrap up this in the news segment it's been just fascinating i want to ask you whether it's too soon for christmas tv adverts um just want to say that delighted to have seen the report from google where uk retailers are doing better than others around the globe so, so it's nice to hear it seems that the work that you and i are doing amongst many others out there is finally paying off but let's slow things down and move on to the content spotlights <music> In this segment, Roger and I surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb, an article, a podcast, a video. So, Roger, what are you bringing to the table this week? Well, Pascal, this was originally going to be a creator shout-out, but I promoted it to a content spotlight <laughs> when I re-watched it for the second time. Now, this is a TEDx talk, a TEDx talk. It's about... Um, just less than 15 minutes long, I think, or maybe slightly more than 15 minutes. So it's really easy to watch and quick to watch. And it's by a friend of mine called Matt Desmere. Now, Matt mm. is a um, marketing consultant like me. He lives down in the south of England. And at, once upon a time, he was the um, conference producer of um, Silicon Beach, which is a really quite famous series of conferences in the 2000s. And Matt's uh, TEDx talk is absolutely and utterly up our street, Pascal. The title of the, TED, of the TEDx talk is, Is the Future Really All That Different? Now, any talk that starts with references to Blade Runner and references to the Back to the Future films gets a massive thumbs up from me as soon as it starts. But Matt really just weaves this whole um, pop culture thing into this talk about let's just sit back for a moment and think about why we are always obsessed with the next thing that comes along that's different. Now, I suppose we could reference it back to what we were saying there about the metaverse. Everybody's going mad about the metaverse at the moment. And, you know, a couple of years ago, everybody was going mad about voice search. Mm -hmm. And arguably, that hasn't turned out to be the massive revolution in communication and marketing than, than people were predicting. And this talk is all about saying, Undoubtedly, just like we said before, the metaverse will, will end up being something big and being something useful. But let's not become completely obsessed with the next thing. Let's also obsess about the things that aren't going to change. And he segues into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, about the need to keep warm, the need to be fed the need to be watered, you know, you know, the basic human condition. And, you know, you could argue that keeping your car fueled and electrified or whatever is, is going to become one of those things that isn't really that different. It's just slightly changed. And 
I'm not really going to say much more other than that, because I want you to go and listen and watch this. It's As I say, it's only about 15 minutes long, and see the conclusion that he comes to. It's really positive, it's full of pop cultural references, and he does say, yes, all of these things that are different are coming, and they're going to be good, but we do need to focus on the things that aren't changing and see how we can make them better as well. So really thought-provoking from Matt Desmayer there. So TED Talk and the link is in the show notes. Oh, thank you very much for that. I'm sure we're all going to be you know, watching that and taking it on board. And I agree with you. It is part of human nature, and I have a lot of sympathy for this idea of moving on quickly. But very often, you and I work with our clients who have not even achieved or finished what they've started. I'd love for someone to spend some time looking also at the adoption rate of, mm. you know, looking back in history, the announcement of item or solution A and how long it took for this to actually be embedded into our practices or our daily lives. And I'm sure the gestation period is actually a lot longer than, than people seem to uh, remember. On that very point, I chose an article actually um, this week, or it found me once again through my app Flipboard, which I use, as you know, Mm. for content curation. It comes from Adweek. Adweek, actually, I used to read the the printed magazine. Perhaps you did as well in the younger days. And it was just a lovely nostalgic return, albeit online. And this is an article written by Paul Hibbert, who is a reporter for Adweek, specializing in consumer goods. And the title is as follows, The Art of Rebranding for the Digital Era. And then there's a subtitle which I think captures what the article is about, which is about this company called Velveeta, a US-based dairy products company. Velveeta is the latest company to replace shine and dimension with flat simplicity. And this is about an article prompted around this rebranding of Velveeta after 20 years where they've gone for, yeah, that kind of uh, calligraphy only uh, much flatter, much stronger colors, um, simplicity. And then the article is a great reminder of all the recent efforts, and there's a couple of reasons as to why I chose it. So they talk about PBS, Volkswagen, Warner Brothers, you know, went for that kind of blue shield. Um, we all know about Visa, Mastercard, Burger King, that you mentioned in a content spotlight a few weeks ago, the GM Smucker Company that you also mentioned, and a few other brands we also have our own of kind of examples in Europe with uh, Renault, with um, the financial company that you mentioned as well. So this kind of race for simplicity is kind of interesting. And Paul is quoting a few experts and a few agencies, and there's two main reasons being kind of put forward. One is practical, that flat simplicity makes it easier to put your brand on the internet, particularly we've all been there, the inconvenience of making your logo fit within your the Twitter or the Instagram kind of icon. Um, so that's one argument. The, the other argument, which I kind of interesting, is around timing and trends, saying that this Flat simplicity was adopted, as you you and I know, by digitally native startups. I would say maybe 10 years ago, we saw that even longer. And what they were trying to express, those startups, is not just obviously their core offering, but their core values around um, impact of the environment, around well-being, wellness, and all those things. And it is felt by the larger corporates that those smaller startups have got more credibility with consumers than they have. So now we have this crazy situation where 20 years ago, even less than that, you and I would be in meetings with our lovely customers who said to us, I need a logo that makes me look bigger and I am on par with the established corporates because otherwise I'm not going to get any clients. And now we have the big corporate saying, we want to have simple logos like the startups because otherwise our customers are not going to believe in us. And this just kind of return reversals is just absolutely incredible. What is interesting about this article is that I read it two, two days ago and it stayed with me, which I think is credit to Paul, to his research and to the quote because I kept thinking about it. So outside of, of this article, I'm thinking, well, can you go too far down the road of simplicity? And there is a mention in the article by, by, by the attempt by the corporates when they change their logos is to try and stand out in a sea of content. I'm thinking, well, hang on, guys, if you're not careful and you all go for that simplicity, I can assure you already I can see that it all looks the same. They all go for the same kind of curved calligraphy. They all seem to go for the same colors. So you know further forward 
But where I am kind of um, happier, if that makes any sense, in terms of the move forward is if you all you do is change your logo to be on trend, I don't think he, that's going to take you very far. But is, um, Paul is quoting someone called Andreas Nichols, who is the creative director at consultancy called Profit, and he's saying, in a way, times has moved on, and the logo is not just something you're going to plonk on a packaging or on your letterhead. The logo serves to be part of the overall experience instead of being the experience. And in the case of um, Velveeta, not only have they changed their logo, but they've completely transformed their content marketing to the point where they have become a media company. And it, it all kind of fits well for, for me uh, from that point of view. So once again, a lovely article to read, one for a reminder about the history of the evolution of, of um, brands who want to be online, but one that really makes you think. Yeah, and of course, you know, we've we've mentioned Facebook and the metaverse already today, and Facebook very famously recently have rebranded their holding company as Meta. Mm. And, and funnily enough, a uh, 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 marketing guy that we all know, Mark Schaefer, I saw him quoted as calling this lipstick on a pig. Um, we've got to remember that branding and logos and the fonts that you choose and the colors you use are only part of the brand experience. The brand is almost like the sum of what people think of you you know and if people think that you are um, a bad company changing the color of your logo <laughs> is not going to change the fact that people think you're a bad company so yes by all means simplify and try to stand out but you've got to look at the whole package you know the culture of your organization what you stand for what your service is like how you communicate with people the language you that you use that's all part of branding and this article obviously focuses in on the, the visual side of things. But I think um, I'm, I am all for simplicity, as we all know. But uh, yeah, sometimes I think you've got to think a little bit wider than just the visuals. Super. So thank you very much again for your contribution today, Roger. Let us know, all of you, what you make of both the video chosen by Roger and the article from me. If you have yourself some content you'd like us to react and review, please do send them to us. For now, it is time to move on to marketing tech and apps. So Roger, what have you found that can make life easier for all of us as content marketers? Okay, well, Pascal, I've mentioned the company DGI, DJI quite a few times recently. I talked about the Pocket 2 camera, which is still absolutely blowing me away <laughs> with the incredible quality that it creates. Um, and this week, I've seen adverts for their new action camera. It's called the DJI Action 2. Now, the reality is this is an alternative to the GoPro. And of course, GoPros have been around for at least a decade now, probably the most famous style of action camera. And pretty much every vlogger out there uses a GoPro to a certain extent. Now, as the technology of the GoPro has become more and more advanced, and as they've been allowing you to shoot in 4K and now even 5K, what used to be quite small cameras have started, I've noticed, each iteration has started to grow in size a little bit to the extent where some people are saying, you know, GoPros are almost getting to the size of small um, DSLR cameras now. Now, what DG, DJI have done here is remarkably innovative, is that they've actually modulate it modulated is that the right word they've created different modules that you can clip together depending upon whether you need it or not so for example on the gopro there's a rear screen so you can see um, what you're looking at if you're pointing the camera at something and in more modern versions of the gopro there's also a front screen so that you can see yourself and frame the shot if you're pointing the the lens at yourself but of course in order to do that the cameras had to get a bit bigger well what dgi have done is they've created all of these extra these things like that as stick-on modules so if you don't want the front facing screen you don't need it so you get the basic effectively what looks like a lens and that's all it is and it literally is about that big in your hand but if you want the front facing screen you've got an extra thing that just clips on underneath and a lot of this is done by very strong magnets and they do the same with their power module they do the same with this magnetic lanyard that you can put around your neck so that the camera effectively gets attached to your chest or, or part of your body and there's 
there's a, a, a selfie stick as well with all sorts of different modules on as well. So they've got been able to go back to something incredibly small, but they've retained all of the additional stuff that you might want that's available on the GoPro. So I think it's a remarkably interesting way of giving people all of those extras without effectively giving them something that's too big. Uh, so yeah, um, I, I'm not actually thinking of going out and buying it just yet because it's actually quite expensive once you've added all the things up together although I guess the price point is pretty much similar to the the whole GoPro uh, but again it just it, it this company is doing innovative things and literally Pascal about two minutes before we started to record this episode. I saw another advert for DJI. They've just launched a new drone, which looks unbelievable. But I'll leave I'll leave that for another another episode. Yeah, I'm sure DJI have got their remarketing, you know, a top notch. So you'll be chased around the interweb, you know, for quite some time. <laughs> Absolutely. But I, I love product design, like, as you do. And there's both simplicity, there's convenience, but there's also clearly a lot of thought, a lot of R&D has gone behind it. And uh, yeah, it's just something different that um, is there. As you were mentioning earlier, when people don't do anything very different, they just repeat or, or, or kind of rebrand. This is just uh, very exciting. So f for me... I was on the, a bit of a research project, so I'm doing a lot of webinars. Everything is kind of rushing before the um, the end of the calendar year, as we mentioned a moment ago. And I've been trying to find something that would allow me to create some better online resources, you know, some better handouts, digital handouts, some better PDFs, and so on. And I wanted something between Microsoft Word and Canva. You know, it's Microsoft Word doesn't look really nice. Canvas sometimes can be <laughs> convoluted to use to try and do a handout. Um, I must confess, I failed miserably. But in my attempt to find this amazing online resource, I find something else altogether that got me super excited. So the, the first one is a brand new library of free and premium Google Slides and PowerPoint templates. And they look so, so different. It would be, sometimes can be refreshing to do something either as a little chapter within your webinar or as a standalone presentation that you know for a fact people can't say, oh, that's PowerPoint as in Microsoft or that's Canva. It looks very, very different. And they have many business categories for you to filter and use through. So it's called slidesgo.com. And yeah, lots to choose from, and they refresh the um, the template library on a very regular basis. So you could argue you could use those for resources, but they tend to be mostly for the presentation slides. The second one is a great little tool to add annotations and comments and video comments on YouTube videos. They call it the Play It, Pose It, and Instantly Add a Comment. It's called Timeline Lee with L-Y at the end. And I did a test yesterday by actually um, linking. So all you have to do is copy and paste the YouTube URL. So I copied and pasted the latest um, Two Geeks and Martin podcast. And oddly, we got to the in the news where you talk about the metaverse and Facebook changing its name. I posed a video, I clicked record, and then added a video comment saying, well, actually, since this comment was made by Roger, this is what Facebook has done. So I recorded about the two-minute video within the video. Now, what you can do is send the link to somebody who can watch the video, but when the play, if you like, you know, when it reaches my comment, the video from YouTube poses and it opens a window with my comment saying, oh, by the way, since this was recorded, and I just thought it was exceptionally good for customer care, for additional content. You can embed this kind of um, commented upon video. You can share it on social media, on links, and so on. So slideschool.com for additional ideas, suggestions of template, but timeline Lee for commenting via video and as well as text YouTube videos. Those are both great resources. I really like the sound of the of the of the second one. That's really quite innovative, isn't it? Isn't it? And it, it really interesting to see how that actually works. So uh, yeah, definitely um, uh, great finds, Pascal. Mm. And you're right. I think sometimes you know I use Canva all the time, and it's great. But sometimes I think you just need that refresh, don't you? So it's good to have something else to have a look at. Absolutely. And I could see, for example, you commenting on one of your Rod's vlogs to give mm. some behind the scenes additional yeah. features for your VIP customers. Yep. I was yeah. quite excited, but I'm still looking for the other solutions. So hopefully by next week, I'll have something for you, <laughs> viewers and listeners. 
But as we say all the time at this moment in the podcast, none of this would be possible without the hard work of pioneers and visionaries from the recent and distant past. It is time to move on to This Week in History. In 1938, people were still talking about Orson Welles' broadcast of his radio adaptation of War of the Worlds, which reportedly caused panic amongst listeners who believed the theatrical presentation was actually really happening. They thought it was a news broadcast. Oh my goodness, well in 1983, Bill Gates announces Windows, a graphic user interface for the Microsoft DOS-based systems. However, customers had to be very patient because Windows 1.0 didn't ship until November 1985, two years later. In 1992, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 was released. Sega released the second game for its top franchise, Sonic the Hedgehog 4, the Sega Genesis Platform. Now, of course, it was called the Mega Drive in the UK. It was. In 1995, Golden Eye, the 17th James Bond movie, premieres at the Radio City Hall in New York. After a six-year gap, the world was introduced to Pierce Brosnan as Agent 007 and Judi Dench as M. One of the best Bond films as well, that. I remember being so excited. I went to see it twice, actually. Um, mm. Because he was so different. I mean, it really moved on with the time term of the action. The, it was even mentioned in martial arts magazines for the close quarter to come up. We know that fight between <laughs> Pierce Brosnan and Sean Bean, mm. um, all light kind of uh, fight. And of course, Judy Dench, first female M. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I, I, looking back now, Goldeneye was an absolute standout. I don't think the other three Brosnan films are quite as good. Um, and and, and the, the last two were, were actually pretty ropey. But yeah, Goldeneye would definitely put in my top top five, maybe even top three. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So let me take you back to 1983. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, like I did, you were using the Microsoft DOS or DOS system, which was made you feel like a genius because you had to type in all the commands <laughs> all the time. But when Windows 1.1 arrived, and A, to begin with, we could use a mouse to click on different icons, we thought we'd arrived into the future described in Star Trek movies, didn't we? Yeah, I, I, but I'm sitting here thinking, I just, I remember using DOS. Mm-hmm. And then I remember Windows 3.1, which was obviously further along than Windows 1.0. I, I don't remember using the original version of Windows. And I'm just thinking back, maybe that was the time when I was using the Commodore 64, or maybe there was even something called a Commodore Amiga at the time. Mm. So I think I may have missed out on using Windows 1. For me, what is interesting about the stories of Windows is one that is very tumultuous. I mean, here, as an example, two-year delay from, from the announcement. And I moved on to using a MacBook, I would say, nearly 10 years ago now. And I must say, I'm not regretting any of it. Denise still uses the um, kind of normal PC with um, Windows 10. And it always seems so hard to learn and there's so many different facets and hidden away features. And then by the time you get your head around it, you have to change again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've i got Windows 10 on my computer here. And, of course, Windows 11 is inbound. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and any day I keep expecting to be... Uh, flashed up on the screen do you want to do you want to upgrade to windows 11 now interestingly you can run this compatibility program and apparently my the chip on my pc isn't compatible with windows 11 so it might be the fact that this is as far as i can go unless i upgrade my pc so i was thinking maybe i'll be spared windows 11 until i upgrade but somebody did say to me that the compatibility Ability checker is actually a bit flawed so mm-hmm. i might might still get given the option so we'll see let's see <laughs> the one thing that uh, so i i think the last one i used may have been microsoft xp or the one oh yeah do you remember the infamous microsoft vista mm-hmm. oh that was a horror mm-hmm. wasn't it and that i think horrible. people rebelled horrible. across public sector and which is what caused all the problem you know, people went back to XP. I was very fond of XP. I was also very fond of a product that people didn't know about called Microsoft Story. Have you ever come with this one? Mm, which was no, a free of charge video editing software, 
that ah. literally was tucked away. No one knew about it. Microsoft Story. And you could do either slideshows, like still photography, or you could put video clips to music and so on. You could do, um, essentially, it was like a better version of Movie Maker. Um, so it is part of uh, our lives as computer users, Windows, and it's been an incredible contribution to the world of computers. But I just find that it's fraught with frustrations and problems. Yeah, I know. It's. Uh, I guess it's like anything. They started out simple, didn't they? Windows 1 was dead simple. And you could argue it's the same with the iPhone, the iOS operating system. Originally, it was, it was quite simple, but this constant adding of features eventually gets to the stage where the features, you know, become too complicated and the learning curve can become too steep. And, and maybe that's when they, when they are planning Windows 11 or when they're planning iOS 16, they need to sit, sit back and think, have we taken this too far? And should we go back to our roots of simplicity and try to make it easier for people to use? Mm. Now, your mention of the Sega Mega Drive is bringing ah. back so many, many fond memories. Yeah. Now, Sonic the Hedgehog, the original game, I remember my wife and I, uh, and she would have been my fiance at the time, getting the Sega Mega Drive and playing the original Sonic the Hedgehog. And I think that when we first got that game, we were playing it like nearly 24 hours a day. Um, and in those days, in the original <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog, you couldn't save the progress of the game. Oh, that's right. You yeah, know, yeah. If, you, if you turned the machine off, then that was it. You'd have to start right at the very beginning. And um, I'm sure there were several times where we were getting towards the end of the game and it was no, it was three or four o'clock in the morning, and eventually we would, you know, we'd even put the game on pause and go to bed and come back the following day, and and it's just sat there paused all night, burning the image of Sonic into the screen of the television. Um, but what was so exciting about Sonic the Hedgehog two was not only was the graphics an upgrade because it came along a couple of years from after the original, but you had this sub game where you could where it split the screen in two. Um, and you could play against an opponent and race through the levels. So that was just astonishing. I, I, it was definitely the first multiplayer game that I'd ever played on on the, the, on the Mega Drive. And just that interaction was it just took it to the next level um you know you could play through the levels and in the top of the screen was me and in the bottom of the screen was Trisha or the other way around and and it and it scrolled through each of them separately and and it was just a, at the time it was just incredible to see that the graphics will probably look quite primitive in comparison to today but at the time that split screen just blew our minds and for me, it was also the, the evolution of gaming whereby, I mean, you know, I've been playing games since we could, you know, as children in, um, you know, arcades as well as um, other things. But now you had a character that you could almost become very fond of, big, a big fan. You had the music, part of the brand, you had the colors and everything changed in the 90s around gaming. I used to work in a video rental store. Oh, that was just amazing. So not only did I get to watch the movies, but I got to play the games because we used to rent out the uh, the console and the games and we did deals like if you if you rent, well, GoldenEye was actually on the second bench. If you rent, if you rent the movie, we'll give you some uh, money off if you want to play the game as well. So, you know, that kind of things. But yeah, the, the Sega Mega Drive, I think from a home entertainment point of view, uh, you know, it's changed everything because after that, it became just a kind of thing that a family could talk about, but also people would be swapping games in the schoolgirls and that kind of things. Yeah, no, the, there were some fabulous games on the Mega Drive, and we'll have to stop talking about it. Otherwise, I'll start talking about Alicia Dragon and Hellfire and uh, Son what was that one with the dolphin called? Echo the Dolphin. Echo no, the Dolphin. Get, get me off. Get me off this subject, Pascal. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. <laughs> well, let's do that then by going back into the present with our creator shout out. Now, in this segment, Roger and I give somebody a big shout-out because of the amazing work they do to add value to their community. So, Roger, who is under the spotlight this week? Okay, so I'm very grateful for an, uh, an old friend of mine, Owen Philipson, for pointing me to this podcast. He actually... Um, 
tagged me in a post on LinkedIn. Uh, now, Owen, I, I know from the Content Marketing Academy days um, a few years ago, and Owen knows how I love simplicity. And Owen also knows how I fight up against jargon and gobbledygook that people use in their marketing. And this podcast has got a fabulous name. It's called Science Diction. Don't you think that's great? Science <laughs> Diction. And it's all about using language and, and that sort of thing. But he's pointed me at a specific episode, which is jargon and why we love to hate it. The podcast is presented by Joanna Mayer, and this particular episode is just right up my street. It's it's just focusing in on all the ridiculous jargon that we use. And it doesn't matter what industry you're in, whether you're in tech, whether you're in cupcakes, whether you're in car manufacturing, or whether you're in marketing consultancy, there is language that we use that can bamboozle our customers. And I just love the way that they focused in on this. But the the edge to it is this really, you know, maybe we, we say that we hate jargon but maybe secretly do you know maybe secretly we actually do love it so well worth checking out i've only listened to the one episode so far so thanks owen for that but i am going to listen to some more of them because with a title like science diction you've just got to haven't you <laughs> this is amazing the other thing that is amazing roger is very much like you I'll be thanking somebody for introducing me to this creator shout-out. So, Mission MacArthur Morgan, a big supporter of Two Geeks and Marketing podcast, was interviewed recently on the UK Health Radio Show. And she shared that um, an announcement on LinkedIn. So, thank you, Michelle, for introducing me to the real feel-good radio. UKHealthRadio.com is the first ever radio station in the world dedicated to health and wellness. It has been founded by Johan Ilgefritz. And I recommend anyone to go on the About section to read the story and watch the video of what inspired Johan to launch this radio, which is linked to his own personal combat to against cancer. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because I am so blown away by the effort this would have taken seven years ago to create a 24-7, Roger, a 24-7, 365 days a week, um, days um, a year, um, radio show. So this is a web radio. This is not just a podcast that is published once a week. They have shows on the hour, 24 hours a day. It's absolutely incredible. And he has re successfully gathered around him around 28 presenters, each with their own specialism. When I checked UK Health Radio, I literally landed on a yoga class, which was <laughs> absolutely brilliant. And I found myself very much like you, just drawn in and I listened to for the rest of the evening. So examples would be things like there's a tech tech health show, there's Yes to Life, there's To Immunity and Beyond, there's Health and Humor. There's the Recovery Road, the Menopause Sisters, and so on and so forth. It's so incredibly rich. And more to the point, Roger, it's also, I would say, would have been quite a challenge technically in, in terms of the tech that Johan had to use. I'd be delighted to um, to understand more about it, but just to kind of wrap up on their own statement. So this is a um, radio show to deliver reliable health information so that you, our listeners and readers, because they have a magazine, are able to make better quality decisions when it comes to your health and that of your family. And all the presenters, all the guests and so on are so dedicated. So first I was delighted that Michelle was a guest on their show, but also I'm delighted to have found a web radio that I will definitely be listening to. It's it's incredible how powerful radio is. And and I think that sometimes as marketers we forget how popular radio is. In fact, I think that radio is probably having a bit of a renaissance through mm. apps and things like that. And again, in marketing circles, the gurus are always telling us, you know, the majority of content that's consumed is video. And, you know, you and I have talked on this podcast many times, audio is still a very, very powerful medium. You know, one of the reasons why Clubhouse has become so popular and Twitter spaces, but good old fashioned radio absolutely isn't dead. No don't listen to anybody that says it is. And again, you know, from a marketing point of view, if it's a radio station that takes advertising and you can target your local area and that's the sort of marketing communications that you might mm -hmm. be into, then it still works. Absolutely. So firstly, 
Joanna Meyer and Johan Ilgefritz, thank you for the inspiration, but also to Owen and Michelle, thank you for pointing us in the right direction. Really appreciate it. All right, Monsieur Roger Edwards, we have reached a time for film marketing. Yes. Now, Roger, 1994 was a very good year for movie fans. We went to see Stargate, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Wyatt Arp, Legends of the Fall, Shawshank Redemption, Speed featured in this show, Forrest Gump, The Crow, Time Cop, and so many others, including Interview with the Vampire. Let's watch a trailer again. I want you to see we get started. So you want me to tell you the story of my life? I'll tell you my story. I'll tell you all of it. I'm flesh and blood, but not human. I haven't been human for 200 years. From the novel by Anne Rice. From Neil Jordan, the director of The Crying Game. I've come to answer your prayers. Life has no meaning anymore, does it? His name is Lestat. But what if I could give it back to you? Pluck out the pain and give you another life. One you could never imagine. I can see you lying on a bit of satin. He chose one man. He gave him infinite power. Eternal life. And a daughter who would be forever young. This is the only real evil left. And then he took the light of day. You're a vampire who never knew what life was until it ran out in a red gush over your lips. Stand this any longer. You made us what we are, didn't you? God kills indiscriminately, and so shall we. Do you like dying? You condemn me to hell. Monster. One happy family. Take her to we end her suffering and yours. For do not doubt, you are a killer. Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Stephen Ray, Antonio Banderas, Kirsten Dunst, and Christian Slater. Interview with the Vampire. Wow, Roger, thank you <laughs> so much for suggesting this film for film marketing. Oh, do you know what, Pascal? I was looking through amazon prime the other day for a film to watch and hadn't intended to uh i wasn't even looking for a horror film at the time and for some reason it it just popped up as a suggestion and i thought oh look interview with a vampire remember that being a good film so we watched it and wow memory lane it is such a good film gothic horror at its best I just love the sort of historical setting, um, New Orleans and Paris as, uh, as the main feature. Um, really quite bloodthirsty film. Mm. There's a lot of blood and a lot of gore and a lot of really quite nasty violence in this. And I guess it was probably the, a resetting of vampire lore, wasn't it? Really until Interview of a Vampire, it had always been Count Dracula, whether it was the Christopher Lee version of the sixties or it was the uh, the sort of the more up to date. Can't remember the the name of the person who did the the vampire um, reboot uh, of, of the nineties, but this changed everything when it came to vampires, uh, and I guess. It redefined vampires until the Twilight series came along uh, a decade or so later. And True Blood, the TV series, redefined vampires. But for a while, this was it. I think for me, what is interesting is so we had The Lost Boys, 1987, and then mm. nothing else, I would, I would argue. Maybe Near Dark is in there as well. 
and then there's a big gap. So with The Lost Boys, being a vampire, the message was, it's cool. I think you and I agree that we wanted to be vampires but, but when watching The Lost Boys. But then when you watch an interview with a vampire, you go, no, I don't want to because <laughs> being a vampire is so tragic. And that's why it really was lovely. So um, thanks to, to you, I found the, the, the movie on Amazon Prime and watched it again last night. And because I used to own the video on VHS cassette, which tells you how long ago that was, yeah. I remember it very, very well. But watching it all those years later um, with me at a different age, I got the the sense of this is a horrible movie to watch because Lestat is a horrible, horrible person. He's selfish, he's manipulative, he's um, vindictive, he is um, very violent, he's very sadistic. Uh, humans to him are just food and cattle and obviously you've got the opposite with the character of Louis and I thought that this was one of the most emotionally charged vampire movies I've seen because then uh, years later we have Blade in 98 which again has been reviewed in Two Geeks Marketing Podcast which takes the vampire genre in a different stratosphere altogether and like you I loved the fact that it was taking place in the 18th and 19th century because then you could have, which they did do, amazing uh, art uh, direction. You could have costumes and so on and so forth. But also, I was very surprised the special effects have not aged one bit. No, they were remarkable. And the makeup effects um, of uh, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, the sort of the, the pale skin where you can see the the veins through the skin remarkably good remarkably good makeup and the gore fact I mean mm. there's one bit where where um, Louis chops another vampire in half with a scythe or something <laughs> and you know splat down to the ground that's really quite you know it felt a little bit walking dead in you know 20 years before walking dead type of, of special effects there incredible um but yeah there's a massive amount of melancholy and and you can see that you know Brad Pitt realizes how miserable being a vampire is and doesn't want to become the evil person that Lestat is. There's a mm. massive, massive emotional tug there. Well, it's interesting. My memory of watching it when I was much younger, 94, is literally a different century. Yeah, is yeah. I really enjoy the dark humour uh, at this moment when Lestat is reprimanding, obviously, Claudia because she killed the, um, I think, either the, the piano teacher and stuff like that. And then you laugh, but then watching it now, I'm thinking, this is terrible. This is, uh, and, and I don't know, I think it's a movie that therefore could be enjoyed for m more, more different reasons. But as you hinted during the introduction of this episode, it had a very tumultuous, to use that term again, um, marketing campaign, didn't it? Well, you know, when we were doing the research for this, Pascal, I actually initially couldn't find anything about the marketing, the actual marketing campaign by the studio, other than, as you would expect, the posters and the uh, the, the trailer. Uh, I, I do actually like the uh, strapline for the film, Drink From Me and Live Forever, mm. which I thought was was good. And, and again, that, that hides that undercurrent of the fact that living forever as a vampire in this context, isn't actually a very pleasant prospect. But I think the the marketing for this film actually ended up revolving around a great big spat, oblique argument between the writer of the original novel upon which the film was based, Anne Rice, and the studio. Um, because basically... She wrote the screenplay for the film as well as writing the original source novel, but she objected massively, massively to the casting of Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt in this film. But particularly, she was almost insane with anger about Tom Cruise being cast in this role, thought that it was the worst casting choice thought that they would pander to his youth, thought that they would dumb, dumb it down because he had this clean-cut sort of American boy image. And she really just went up against the studio and, and, and created this furore in the run-up to the, uh, the launch of the film. And of course, what it inadvertently did was it focused people's attention on the film. And arguably, if she hadn't had such a 
problem with the casting, the film might not have been as successful because of because of it, 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 she drew so much attention to her dislike of the people that they'd cast in the film. People are suggesting this was a tactic by the studios, and I can assure you, <laughs> judging by the tone and the content of what, what she complained about, it, it couldn't have been because it was just too vitriolic. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 for me, I became aware of that that tension. Um, I also became aware that Geffen Pictures, the producers, actually took took her on and said, "You're wrong." Yeah. And and for me, it was also, is it possible that there's been just a breakdown in communication? Maybe she doesn't understand how films are being made. And with respect, actors will act. You know, they're given a character, they can do a good job. I'm also thinking, well, did she not know about Stephen Frears? Um, did she not know about the likes of um, Neil Jordan? Did she not look at Antonio Banderas, Christian Slater? You know, did she not know about their work? I mean, Neil Jordan had discovered like many others with a company of wolves in the early early eighties. He did Mona Lisa, which is just outstanding, a crying game two years prior. So I'm wondering whether she just didn't understand the world of cinema um, necessarily. Um, it's understandable that she should be very protective of her work. I mean, the Vampire Chronicles, this was written in 76, as memory serves. And that would just, and I was also thinking, Roger, if you are the people making the film, that can't be nice. I mean, I know you could say, well, oh, you know, I'm sure Tom Cruise can just, you know, ride it because he's going to be paid a fortune. But where you're there, you know, he did confess when you're suspended on your feet for an entire morning with those um, very old-fashioned kind of... Uh, eye lenses, you've got makeup and so on, and behind, you know, there's a murmur of Anne Rice unhappy with you. It can't be a, a very, very nice thing. But there is a good conclusion to all this, isn't there? Yeah, and, and just before we, I tell you what the conclusion is, I, I will agree with you. You know, she was saying that, she, that the casting was like put, putting Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer in the roles of the vampires. And, you know, we're looking back, you know, 30-odd years here, and we obviously think of Tom Cruise as he is today, you know, a, a, an actor that's been around for ages, a, a middle-aged man. But back then, it was relatively early in his film career, wasn't it? I'm trying to think when Risky Business came out. That must have been about 86, mm. 87. So he's only within the first decade. So I imagine he, it, it probably did get right inside his, you know, in, in, inside his ego and inside his heart, some of the horrible things that this, this woman was saying. But as you say, the conclusion was that when she saw the film, she absolutely loved it. And moreover, she absolutely loved Tom Cruise's performance and Brad's Brad Pitt's performance and she was so sort of racked with guilt I guess that she even took out adverts in newspapers herself to effectively apologize publicly for the row she'd caused which again gave the film another boost <laughs> and and in fact you can find on on um, YouTube a clip from around the time and, and it's pretty ropey quality to be perfectly honest it must be um it must have been shot on a very low resolution camera but again she's saying i was wrong and this film is great and the performances are great you know and you've already said that lestat's character is a nasty horrible evil person but my goodness tom cruise acted his socks off to create mm. that that evil character and i'm glad that in the end she she saw that what they have actually put together was pretty impressive and that's very much to her credit and and yeah. that to me is is what's important so then certainly is, is breathing better uh, by the way her supporters the readers of the book were prepared to just literally not go to the movies to in support of <laughs> her cause so then they were turned around and as you mentioned we had some very very striking uh, poster art uh, i mean I, I used to love just look at the front cover of that vhs cassette with the, with the menacing look of Lestat and mm -hmm. looking into, you know, Louis and Claudia. For mm -hmm. me, it's back to, this is 1994. 
it's hard to remember what it, what life was like in 1994, but well, I can tell you, Roger, and to our viewers and listeners, the internet, which is where I sometimes you know focus on, was very different. So what you had was Yahoo. Oh yes, Yahoo yeah. was the number one destination for film news, snippets, and reviews and, and from critics. And and IMDb was merely three to four years old, so it was more like a very posh Excel spreadsheet. Game yes. So what we had in terms of um, the internet was blogs, both personal moviegoers but also celebrities like um, Roger Herbert and you had of course the extensive coverage in print media and what was very telling about this movie back to your point earlier about the um, you know the costumes the era the fact that with their long hair they look like rock stars frankly both all of them yeah Um, not only did movie magazines um, cover it but also I would call them lifestyle magazine like New York Times The Rolling Stone Esquire Vanity Fair had an interview with um, Tom Cruise of course Fangoria that we mentioned a few times they would cover it and then what they did was well they had obviously the print version in 1994 all they did was to put the words onto a web page so in 1994 film fans would have to read a text only web page which is unthinkable of course nowadays because we didn't have the connection Activity to even look at a picture or a video. In the UK, I remember um, I used to get Flix magazines. Uh, they, <laughs> they were in OK Magazine, which I did not read, in case people are wondering. But certainly, I used to buy Empire Magazine and Total Film all the time, and they were colour in there. But um, the one unintended uh, also form of PR was doing the LA screenings, Los Angeles screening. 1994, the audience were not used to such direct violence. I mean, if you've not seen the film, approaches, it's going to be a spoiler. But when Claudia tries to kill Lestat, it's what a scene. I mean, it's yeah. so violent and back to the special effects and so on. And there is a, I thought it was a very funny scene, but somebody else disagreed with me. Do you remember the one where um, Louis refuses to drink blood from the humans. Mm. So Lestat shows him how to drink from a rat. Mm. And he catches a rat and literally bats into the necks and empty the blood of the rat into a glass. Well, Oprah Winfrey disagreed with that scene <laughs> and he walked out of the Los Angeles screening, creating more PR coverage, making people thinking, I've got to see this film. It's so bad that Oprah Winfrey walked out. Indeed. And, <laughs> you know, again, that's influencer marketing. 30 years ago, isn't it? It's influencer marketing. 30 years ago. I'm surprised that they never made a sequel to this. Now, Anne Rice has written many books in the Vampire Chronicles series, and the next book was called The Vampire Lestat. Now, it was going to be a bit more of a history of Lestat rather than Louis. Um, But they never got Tom Cruise back to play the stat again, which is a real shame. I think there was a sequel in the end of the third book, uh, Queen of the Damned, maybe Correct. it was called. Mm. Uh, and I've never seen it, and I believe it's utter rubbish, so I probably will not watch it. But uh, maybe it's better that this film stands alone on its legacy. I would agree. In terms of follow-up, um, only a few months ago, AMC announced that they're getting pretty close to doing a TV series. Mm. An adaptation of the Interview of the Vampire, but it would be a TV series. So I'm, I'm back to your point. Well, I've seen the film again, I love the film. Would I want to see a TV series based on the same story? Possibly. Once again, if they're going to produce it as well as they have done the main feature, that would be very exciting. But um, I do think that this is the first time that in film marketing we've had to talk about this conflict and clash between the writer and the producers to the degree that, I mean, literally, that's all the media and others were talking about. Yeah, I think so. And and in looking back now, in 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 hindsight, it was really interesting, and and it probably led to a great deal of the success that the film had. But at the time, I can imagine it must have been quite stressful and frustrating for everybody involved. Yeah, and I'd like to think that both all parties have learned from that, and mm. it may well be that particularly for the filmmakers, they've learned to maybe communicate with the writers better because mm. I don't think this has been the same experience for J.K. Rowling's with the Harry Potter franchise. Mm. Mm. No. Wow. Well, sadly, 
Roger Edwards. This is the end of this episode of Two Geeks and Martin podcast. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful co-host and bringing to the table many of the content and tech that can make life easier for all of us. To our viewers and listeners, thank you for your support. It is much appreciated. Please leave comments and suggestions in the usual places. Until the next time, please go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Fintoni and he was Roger Edwards. Thank you.